Turn in your Bibles to Luke 24. Church, don't you just love worshiping the resurrected Jesus? Man, and we're, we're going to be doing this forever the, to experience this life. I mean, it's going to be so much more than what we're experiencing even now, as awesome as that is. I'm looking forward to it. I, I really, truly, truly am. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I loved to pretend. Stories told about a little boy who, for his birthday, got a Superman cape, and, and he put it on, and he ran outside, and he was zooming around, and he was leaping over bushes and, and trying to jump over trees and at least swinging from the branches, and he was running all around the house, and then he finally came inside and plopped down on the couch so upset, and he said, man, no matter how hard I try, this stupid thing doesn't work. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, how many times have you ever as a kid, I know for me, I put on that Superman cape and God, I even tried jumping off the roof of our garage. Still didn't work. Oh, well. Disappointments. I want to ask you, have you ever experienced a disappointment in your life? I can remember one, I know this is Easter, but I remember one Christmas morning, uh, we had just, our family had gone through a very difficult time and, I mean, financially, and there was, my, my mom had warned us, you know, there's probably not going to be very much money, if anything, for Christmas presents, so don't expect a lot under the tree. And so uh, I woke up early Christmas morning, like any other Christmas morning, and going downstairs, and I would have this little tradition of go, looking around under the tree, and there's usually a lot of gifts, because we're six kids in my family. And you're looking at all the presents, trying to find the ones with my name, and you pick it up, and you shake it, and you're really excited when off in the corner, see, your present couldn't fit under the tree, so they had to put it off to the side, hoping one of those would be yours. And there were hardly any presents under the tree. And I just thought, Bummer Christmas morning. And we, we sit down, we have our traditional breakfast, and we sat down, and my dad would distribute the gifts one after, and we'd just go around the room, and we would open our gifts, and the Christmas morning was over pretty quickly that morning, and he looked, and, and I realized, well, I, I know that it's sparse this morning, but it seems as if my brothers got more than me. I, I struggled, and when the last present was opened, because, you know, my dad would pull them out from the tree one at a time, and I realized, they're all gone. Really? This is it. I was disappointed. And my dad, he just sat there, and he looked at me, kind of waiting for me to say something. And he said, Michael, we have one more gift for you, but you're going to have, you're gonna have to go downstairs to see it. I thought, Whoa didn't fit under the tree. <laughs> and so I go down, I, I, I ran downstairs. You see, up in the north, they have something called basements. Yeah, anyway, I ran down the stairs, and there in front of me was like the coolest ever bicycle that God created. I, yeah, as a kid, I believe God created bicycles. They were like, this is a boy's co dream come true. And it had everything on it except launchers to go to the moon. And then we didn't have a little water bottle, a little thing to put your lunch in. I just thought, man, I could ride my bicycle like all day. I could go like miles and miles. I think the furthest I went was like two or three from home. But you know, I could pack a lunch and all of this, and it was so exciting. But I remember how disappointed I was at the very end of unwrapping the presents thinking, 
And I just want to ask you this morning, have you ever encountered that kind of disappointment? You were really looking forward to something, maybe a vacation you had saved up for, and it like rained all week. Yeah, <laughs> that has actually happened with me. Uh, actually, a hurricane blew through the Outer Banks of North Carolina and ruined it. But what kind of disappointments have you encountered in life? I want us in Luke 24 to see a disappointment or how two young men were dealing with the disappointment of Jesus' death. And I want us to step back and be able to look at some of the implications of the truths that we're going to find here in Luke 24. Are you there with me in Luke 24? I'm not going to read the entire chapter. Meredith has already read some. But I'm going to, I'm going to read select portions. I'm going to pick it up where they, Jesus joins two men. One, his name is Cleopas. The other name is unknown. And I can only imagine the reason why Cleopas is mentioned is obviously he's a believer in Jesus. We'll find that out. But he probably became a well-known person. And, and I just want to begin with this. I personally believe, I mean, I, I didn't experience what Cleopas experienced, not exactly. But I believe that God has truth in his word that he wants you to experience. That's why these truths are here, because Jesus invites you to experience these truths. There's nothing worse than knowing a truth and just never experiencing it. It's like, well, that's kind of nice. And let me just put that one on the shelf. And this story is not meant for us to do that, to put it on the shelf, but for you to experience this. And Cleopas experienced it, and it radically changed his life. But as Jesus is walking along the road with them, he notices There's something wrong. He comes up with them. He's walking along with them and starting with verse 16. But they were kept from recognizing him. Mark 16 says he was in a different form. I uh, imagine that his face just for whatever reason just didn't look the same. The important thing is while he's walking with them, they do not recognize him. He asked them, why are you discuss excuse me, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I just want you to underline those two words, redeem Israel. We need to look at that a little bit more. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of the companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are. Not a good note to start off with people you supposedly just met. How foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ 
have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Why are these two disciples downcast? Now, the NASB, New American Standard Bible, says they were sad. They looked sad. They were depressed. They were totally bummed. Why are they so discouraged? He says because we had expected this Jesus to, in essence, be the Messiah. He was going to come and he was going to redeem Israel. But what happened? The spiritual leaders of our day turned him over to the Roman authorities and the Romans crucified him two days ago. And what's more, to top this off, we had some ladies go to the tomb and his body isn't even there. Now, they said that the angels told them, you know, whatever that's worth. The angels told them that he was not here, blah, blah, blah. And even Peter ran, and he checked it out, and his body isn't there. Who would steal his body? This doesn't make any sense. And they're so discouraged. And Jesus is, I'm sure he pauses and says, so wait a second. You mean to tell me that you expected this Jesus, I'm paraphrasing, by the way, you expected this Jesus to redeem Israel, and all that happened from your perspective is that he got crucified, and some stories going around that maybe he's raised from the dead, but, you know, you just can't trust those ladies. They're just so emotional, but I guess it is what it is. One of the guys, yeah, Peter, good guy, went down, checked it out. They're right, but they, he didn't find Jesus. So you're disappointed about all of this. And he says, you are foolish. Oh, and by the way, you are foolish, and you're slow of heart to believe. And they're kind of taken aback here. Who is this dude? Really? I mean, we don't even know you, and you're trying to tell me I'm foolish, and I'm slow of heart to believe? What are you getting at? Now, I have paraphrased this. Jesus simply said, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. Now, apparently, we're not going to look into this. We could. But apparently, the prophets, like Isaiah 53, if you've ever read Isaiah 53, it's a portion of Scripture that's written in, yeah, the book of Isaiah. You got it. But 700 years before this event took place, 700 years, all 12 verses, they will blow you away. It's like Isaiah was standing there and saw it all, but he's 700 years removed. And there's so many Psalms, and even in, in the first five books of the Bible, the Moses, the, the prophets, Psalms and such, prophesying, predicting that these very things would happen. But see, they had to happen. But for some reason, you don't get it. Now, let me just explain to you why they don't get it, okay? Because this is going to play into our expectations. Because many times in the Christian life, we step back and say, wow, God, I don't get it. Why would you do, why would you allow, I thought you loved me. I thought, I thought the Christian life was going to be so different than what is happening in my life. And we kind of blame God, right? Come on, we, we blame God. This isn't what I expected. 
So Jesus tells them, you guys missed it. Now, we don't know exactly what he told them, but he does start with Moses. Now, here's a curious thing. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 6, because this is our first encounter with this concept of redeem. Now, while you're turning there, <coughs> I'm going to read a verse. There's actually more, but I'm going to read just one. In the very beginning of Luke, who uses this term, redeem Israel, I'm going to share with you the first time, the first occurrence of that phrase, redeem. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've, I've got the sniffles here. I think my eyes were leaking a little bit earlier. You know, I've seen this skit, I don't know how many times, and I still cry every time I see it. It still is so powerful as if it were the first time I've ever seen it. It is what it is, I guess, huh? And as Anna, now you're turning to Isaiah, uh, excuse me, you're, you're turning to Exodus chapter 6, right? I'm reading from Luke 2, 20, uh, excuse me, 38, you don't have to turn there. But Anna comes into the temple, she is 84 years old. She is a widow, had been a widow for like a gajillion years. And she is a woman who is of the tribe of Asher, and she is, she is a prophetess, she is an intercessor. And which basically means she prays a lot and has this really intimate relationship with God. And it says, coming up to them at that Mary and Joseph who have baby Jesus, who they were there dedicating him. Jesus is only a few months old or a few weeks. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child, Jesus, to all who were looking forward to the redemption of of Israel, the redemption of Israel. Uh, again, that's a curious thing. Where is Luke getting this idea of the redemption? But do you know what? He, do you even know what redemption means? See, redemption is a purchase. It's a it's a monetary type of transaction. I'm going to pay for something, and now you no longer own it, but I own it. And God is going to do this with Israel. Now, if you do that with people, what do we call that? We call it slavery. I'm buying you. You now belong to me. We call that slavery. And that happens to be the context of this passage. And this is going to be very important for us to get what Jesus is getting at here. Because it says he does start in Moses. And I am sure since they brought up the subject, we thought he was going to redeem Israel. That that's probably the first thing he addresses. Let me set the record straight about this redemption thing. And in verse 6, it says, therefore, God is speaking to Moses, telling him, this is what you're going to do. This is how I'm going to set the people free from Egypt. That's the context here. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And he uses the covenantal name there, not just Adonai, Lord, but Yahweh. I am the Lord, Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the yoke of of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And so what we are, what, the picture that we get here is that God is purposefully going to reach into Israel 
and he is going to bring judgments on Egypt. Now, we understand them as the ten plagues of Egypt. And I'm not going to rehearse them to you, but he brings these ten plagues upon them, and he uses that as a transaction, as a means of judgment, but as a means of purchasing them, and especially when we come to the very last judgment. You might remember it if you've ever seen the movie. For me, it was Charlton Heston. Whatever else is out there, I don't know. But I, mean, I, I fell in love with that movie. I thought Charlton Heston was awesome, played a great Moses. While he is going through these plagues, we see that God brings judgment on the oldest in Egypt. And we see that Pharaoh loses his first son. And it totally undoes him. And he is broken. But God rescues the Israelites. Do you remember how? He said, here's what you need to do. Put the blood of a lamb over the doorpost. And I will what? Pass over you. I will not bring judgment upon you. Your firstborn will live. But you have to have this blood. And so we understand that now in the New Testament to be the blood of Jesus. Now let's go back. <clears throat> God says, I am going to buy this transaction. I'm going to redeem you from slavery. Egypt owns you. You belong to them. I'm going to come and I'm going to rescue you physically, remove you from slavery, and you will walk free. All Now, if you do the math, they say 600 fighting men. Fighting men generally comprise about one-fourth to a third of any given population, generally, of the fighting age 20 to 50. And that would mean there'd be about two to two and a half million Jews they walked. And the Jews, excuse me, the Egyptians blessed them with gold and silver. In essence, get out of here, all right? I mean, your God is wasting us. I mean, totally devastating our land. Now, they leave, and they have all of these kinds of encounters with God. We call that the Exodus. The Jews celebrate Passover every year. It falls on the weekend that we celebrate the resurrection because Jesus was crucified on what we call Good Friday, which is Passover. We, he is, if you will, the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, his blood over the doorpost so that God passes over us. And God, by the cross, has made this transaction that we call redemption. So here we have a physical redemption People of Israel leaving Egypt, and now they think, well, for God to redeem Israel, then there is going to be a physical rescuing from our captives. And who were their captives but the, yeah, the Romans? So this Messiah, when he redeems us, he is going to physically break this uh, authoritative bondage over us by the Romans and then there's much more that is said as far as victory and all nations uh, coming to Jerusalem. And Isaiah has a lot to say about this and many of the other prophets. So they thought in terms of a physical redemption. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, wow, guys, the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to have to suffer and on the third day rise again because he's not going to break the physical bondage of slavery that you're in, but he is going to break a spiritual bond to sin 
And that's why his blood has to be shed. Because apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Scripture's clear on this. And so I'm sure Jesus challenged them. But how did the Jews respond? They had this expectation of what the Messiah will do and that he will come and he will conquer the Romans, et cetera, et cetera. And that didn't happen with Jesus. As a matter of fact, he did miracles, even raising people from the dead like Lazarus. But he broke the Sabbath. He, he, he did miracles, recreative miracles, which they considered work on the Sabbath. For the spiritual leaders, there's no way Jesus could be any kind of spiritual leader from God, Messiah, etc. And so now, Jesus is trying to set the record straight. But the Jews rejected him, and he warned them. And we, we actually find it in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, in which Jesus tells them, he said, if today... You knew what, if, you, if, if only today you knew what would bring you peace, but you have rejected me. And he begins to unfold for them how Jerusalem would fall. And within 40, actually exactly 40 years later, 70 A.D., the, the Romans after a three-and-a-half-year siege against Jerusalem, completely destroyed it. Now, Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian, writing in about 90-some A.D., tells us that there were 1.1 million Jews impacted who were gathered for the Passover, and they were impacted by the Romans. The Romans came in to get the gold. Uh, the, the Jews, by the way, put a torch to their temple because they thought it's better for us to destroy it than be desecrated by these Gentiles. And all the gold on the walls melted and went down into the cracks of the stones that made up the floor. When the Romans came in, they took pieces of metal and pulled up all of the stones to get the metal. Not one stone remained on another, which is what Jesus predicted 40 years prior to that. Let me read a quote to you from a gentleman who is probably a Roman pagan. He's observing three people, three great men in history in which their people killed them and bad things ensued. And one of them is Jesus. He's probably writing, I would say, about 73 AD, so after the fall of Jerusalem. And I'm only going to read the, the things that pertain to Jesus. He's writing to his son. His name is Mara, son of Serapion, and his son's name is Serapion, named after his father. And he says this to his son. He himself, by the way, is in jail. And he says, what advantage did the, excuse me, what advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. Skipping down. The Jews, desolate and driven from their own kingdom, live in complete dispersion. Here's a non-Christian, a pagan, and he observes the judgment of God for rejecting the Messiah. Can I ask you what misunderstandings might you have about Christ, the cross, the resurrection, Christianity, 
Let me just share a few of them with you. Many of us feel that the resurrection is more a fable. It's kind of like something that I grew up being told that, eh, I mean, it probably didn't happen, but it's a good thing to believe in. That actually is the view of what's called liberal theology today. It didn't really happen, but it's a good moral story. It's something nice to reflect upon, what sacrifice, what love, and it's a good story to, to tell your children. gives us hope, the resurrection, et cetera, et cetera, but did it really happen? Come on, not really. And for many of us, including myself, until I, I truly embraced this truth personally, I saw it more as a fable. I didn't question whether it was true or not. I mean, it could have been, it couldn't have been. I, I mean, whatever. But yeah, it's a good story, and I know every Easter I'm going to hear it, just like you're hearing it this morning. But my question to you is, is it true? Is it true, not just for you, but do you understand, do you believe it, and do you live it as if it is true? Now, for some of us, we don't do that. In fact, we don't even ask, is it true? Well, I mean, I guess it is. My mom said it was true. I guess it is, but it's not impacted us. And I would venture to say, this morning, you're disagreeing. Some of us, we think, well, if I believe, then you know what? God will heal my marriage. If I believe, then God will give me a promotion. If I believe, if I do something for the kingdom of God, then God will do something for me. And just like I talked about, was it last week or the week before? It's like we're sitting at this bargaining table, making a deal with God. And God is saying, you know what? I don't cut deals. I don't cut deals. You need to completely follow me. That's what I'm asking. This is not some let's make a deal transaction here. This is you saying, Jesus, I will follow you all the days of my life. And I want to ask you this morning, have you come to Christ on his terms? Because if not, then this morning you're disillusioned. Jesus is just one of many ways of God. This is very common in our day when we visited Europe uh, some years ago. One of the main belief system there was all roads lead to Rome, so to speak, or Tokyo, or you know, or, or Mount Fuji. There it is, or, or whatever. And and basically, meaning all religions preach the same God, so they say. But Jesus then comes, and in John fourteen six says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me." Now get a load of this. What other God came to this earth knowing that you sinned and you were an enemy of God and he paid the price for your sin so that God could forgive you, because God could have a relationship with you? Whoever did that for you? There is no other God that has ever done that. And I put that into the small team because they're all false gods. Jesus himself stepped out of the glories of heaven and shackled himself with human frailty to suffer through life as you and I have and then die for your sin. That is the way, the truth, and the life. And if, if you have not come to that understanding, I would say today you are disillusioned. Maybe you feel if I'm just religious enough, if I just do this and this, and last week I talked about how when we went to Italy, many people were rubbing the feet of Mary, and it's really shiny. 
It has no form to it whatsoever because thousands, mil millions of hands have rubbed across it, hoping that they will receive forgiveness. But church, there is only one way that you and I will ever receive forgiveness, and that is through what Christ did for us on the cross. And we, yet we, we think, maybe if I go to church enough, maybe if I give to the poor enough, maybe if I do this enough, maybe if I'm religious enough, maybe if I look the part, as if you can dupe God, really? Maybe if I am religious enough, God will forgive me and I'll get to be with him forever in heaven. And we live under this delusion. And if today that is where you're at, maybe if you're religious enough, I'm going to tell you that God will say to you, you're not. You can never be religious enough. Actually, he doesn't care about that stuff. He truly doesn't. I don't care how many times you stroke Mary's foot. Jesus wants you, your life, not your religion. He wants your life, your heart. And if you're still trying to act religious and somehow understanding that to be the way to eternal life, my friends, today you are disillusioned. I know for me, I believe the facts. Eventually, I went beyond fable. I went to, okay, these are true. Yeah, I believe Jesus is the son of God. And yet now I never truly believed in Jesus. And what he did for me, the cross, the resurrection, never changed my life. Because I was still at that stage. I believed the facts, but I never believed in Jesus. And said, Jesus, I am yours. So we, we are called, I believe, to get rid of our expectations. I believe that's what Jesus is trying to do because they were so slow of heart to believe what was written in the scriptures in the Old Testament. And he was in essence saying, stop putting God in your little box. And open your eyes. As a matter of fact, read with me right here in verse 30. When he was at the table with them, they eventually get to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, get to Emmaus, and they're sitting down. They're about to make him have a meal. He says, when, at the table, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. They recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked? while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And I'm going to tell you this, that when you encounter Jesus, remember, truths aren't just something that we put on the shelf. Truths, in God's word, truths are meant for you to experience. God wants you to experience the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection. That's why they're there. Any truth in the scriptures, God, they're there because God desires for you to experience them. The only way for that to happen is for you to open your eyes. Now, my prayer for many of you this morning is that God would do just that. Because your eyes are closed. And you have yet to really see and behold and understand and grasp with your heart how slow of heart he believed. And then when this happens, you're going to experience truth. And God is going to come into your life and the shackles, the chains that we saw in the skit, that's going to happen to you. That's going to be your testimony. 
Maybe, you know, for me, I didn't get involved with the alcohol and sex and drugs and so on and so forth. But I tell you what, I was still an enemy of God. At age 14, I was an enemy of God. I was living contrary to his will. I had misunderstood expectations that God needed to totally change in my life so that I could encounter the cross and the resurrection and experience its truth and be forever changed. And I'm asking God, please open eyes this morning that they too can experience this and be forever changed. Now, I want us to continue forward here and, and come to this last point. <clears throat> These two disciples, they're sitting at G with Jesus. He breaks the bread and suddenly he vanishes. He's no longer there. And they're taken aback by that and say, this was Jesus. Why? Why, were, why did it take us so long to recognize him? I'm not going to answer that question because I don't know the answer. But God just kept them from recognizing him. And then Jesus, excuse me, they then walk the seven miles back to Jerusalem. They join with the other disciples and they hear Peter himself has seen the risen Lord. And then while they're talking about this and, you know, I mean, did Jesus rise from the dead? I mean, I'm sure there was some division among them. Did he really? Did he not? I mean, this is, this is too good to be true. Jesus appears right there in front of them, in their midst, totally blows their minds, and they're wondering, oh, my goodness, is, is this like a ghost? And Jesus says, hey, 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 feel my hands, touch me. In 1 John, John is like 90 years old when he's writing this letter, and he's saying, we experienced the word of God, Jesus himself. We touched him. We saw him. We, we heard him. I mean, he was real. When he was raised from the dead, he was real. This isn't some story, bedtime story that I'm putting you to bed with. This is real, and it changed us. It undid us. It revolutionized us, gave us new direction. I am a totally different person as a result of encountering this Jesus that I touch. And Jesus said, look, while he's here, he says, get a piece of bread and fish and let me eat it for you. Ghosts don't do that, do they? And he then says this, and I, and I want you to listen. He says in verse 45, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Verse 46. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised. That is the Holy Spirit that we read about in the book of Acts. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. I want to focus on one word out of all of these words that I just read. And this is the word witnesses. And I want you to pause and just think about this for a moment. Not just the 12. Well, I guess actually this is the first night of Jesus' resurrection. So Thomas, doubting Thomas, remember him? He's not there. Judas, no, he didn't make it. But there, it's not just the 10, but it's the two from Emmaus, 
It's others gathered, so it's not just the 12. And he's telling all of them, you will be my witnesses. And you're going to go into all the nations, not just the 12. You're going to go into all the nations telling them what you are seeing here tonight. Now let me read to you from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Because something happened that night that so radically changed them that all of them, all 12, someone took Judas's place, Matthias, and all 12 of them were put on trial. All 12 of them were told, stop preaching about this resurrection story. It's a fable. Stop preaching about believing in Jesus. And yet they did it anyway. They kept preaching Jesus. And I want to ask you, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, it was just a made-up story. The 12 got together, okay, the 11, and they said, hey, guys, pull it in here. I think it would be so awesome if we were to kind of start a new religion today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to tell people that this Jesus that we saw, all of us saw crucified, we're going to tell them. And we saw it with our own eyes. And we're going to go around and we're going to tell everybody believe in Jesus. And we're going to get to start our own religion. I think that would be a lot of fun. And yet, as they concocted this story, wait a minute. History tells us, and we're going to read it in a moment, they were all willing to die for this? Really? The story that they made up? Because as I read this, I want to ask you, is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And then I'm going to ask you, how has it changed your life? But is it true? Because in our day, there's a lot of debate about Christianity. How many of you saw the Lee Strobel movie, The Case for Christ? And in that story, in that movie, it's a picture of his life and how as an atheist, he moved from being an atheist to embracing Jesus Christ because as he researched the resurrection of Jesus, he was completely convinced as an ardent, emotionally ardent atheist, it undid him. He said, I, I, I can't controvert this. It, I can't get around it. Jesus had to have raised, been raised from the dead. And here is one of the reasons why he knew Jesus had to have been raised from the dead. Because here's a group of men. None of them religious leaders, none of them politicians, just ordinary guys like you and me. And they saw something. And they said they saw Jesus raised from the dead. And whatever they saw so impacted them, they were willing to die for it. And this is how Christianity started. In a culture, Jewish culture, that killed Jesus, and was hostile towards Christianity, this is where Christianity was birthed. And Lee Strobel came to the realization, man, this could not have been a made-up story because it totally revolutionized their life to the point where they were willing to die. Philip was scourged, thrown into prison, and afterwards crucified around AD 54. Matthew Gospel according to Matthew, ministering in Ethiopia, was slain with a halberd. What is that, a sword? I forgot to look that one up. I'm sure it's a sword. In the city of Madaba around 60 AD. James the Less, he was beaten 
and stoned by the Jews and his brains dashed out with a fuller's club. Matthias, the guy who took Judas's place, was stoned at Jerusalem and then beheaded. Andrew, excuse me, I forgot to talk about uh, James the Great, John's brother, he was beheaded. We read about that in Acts 12. Andrew was at Edessa, and he was taken and crucified on a cross, the two ends of which were fixed traversely on the ground, so it was like this, sideways, not straight up and down, but sideways, fixed traversely in the ground, hence the derivation of the term St. Andrew's cross. He was crucified. And let me just tell you that crucifixion is probably one of the cruelest, if not the cruelest, forms of execution. Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria, Egypt. Peter, he was crucified, his head being down and his feet upward, himself so requiring because he was, he said, unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord was. <clears throat> Concerning Paul, Abdias declareth that under his execution, Nero sent two of his esquires, Phiriga, I guess that's how you pronounce his name, and Parmethium, Parmetheus, to bring him word of his death, Paul's death. They, coming to Paul, instructing the people, excuse me, this was written in the 1500s, okay? <clears throat> instructing the people, desired him to pray for them that they might believe, who told them that shortly after they should believe and be baptized at his sepulcher. This done, the soldiers came and led him out of the city to the place of execution where he, after his prayers made, gave his neck to the sword. Paul was beheaded. Jude, brother of the Lord, author of the book of Jude, he was crucified at Edessa, A.D. 72. Bartholomew, another one of the twelve, in India, cruelly beaten and then crucified. Thomas, the doubter, in India as well, he was martyred by being thrust through with a spear. And Luke, who we're reading about, was hanged on an olive tree by the idolatrous priests of Greece. Simon preached the gospel in Mauritania, Africa, and even in Britain, in which latter country he was crucified, A.D. 74. And John, from Ephesus, he was ordered to be sent to Rome, where it is affirmed he was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. He escaped by miracle, without injury. Domitian afterwards banished him to the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Nerva, the successor of Domitian, recalled him. He was the only apostle who escaped a violent death. I want to ask you, why would such men be willing to die for what they say they saw if Jesus truly had not been raised and had not truly appeared before them? The skeptics in our day say, well, maybe they were fooled by hallucinations. Well, this we know according to psychology, and there are hundreds of these studies. No two people ever dream or hallucinate the same thing. They've never had that happen in all of the hundred studies. And yet we're being told by skeptics today, oh, they just all hallucinated the same thing. Excuse me, but yeah, right. Absolutely impossible. 
So I ask you, how is it, why is it that they were willing to die? It's because something happened this day that totally changed them, that they were willing to die for what they saw. So I want to ask you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you, you, you say that you're a follower. Has this resurrection, the cross and the resurrection changed your life? Would you be able to say with the apostles, I am willing to die? Paul knew that trouble awaited him in Jerusalem. And yet he went to Jerusalem and he was beaten, he was imprisoned. And he said, I've run a good race. I'm willing to face death, come what may, as long as I get to preach Jesus. Because he, too, had an event with the resurrected Christ that though he was an enemy of Jesus, it radically changed him. Has that happened for you? Now, I'm not saying that you got knocked down to the ground by some light from heaven. I'm just asking you, has the resurrection changed your life? Gentlemen, that many of you know Francis Chan on the front cover of Charisma magazine. Pastor at a church of over 2,500, Cornerstone, maybe it was over 4,000. I, I can't remember the exact numbers. How many of you have ever heard Francis Chan? Heard about Francis Chan? Yeah, a lot of people. Francis Chan, he's a passionate preacher, loves the Lord. He realized that in his preaching, he was, he knew that whatever he said, both those who loved his preaching and his critics would say something on the World Wide Web tweet something, and, and he realized that he began to cater to this, that he became a man pleaser. And he said, God, I just want you to change me. So he went to China. Now, I don't know if you're familiar, but they say there's about 50 million Christians in China. It's an underground church because for you to not be underground, you have to register your church with the government, and they get to control whatever you do and say. Christians don't want that because they know what the government's going to do, so it's underground. The entire church, underground. When he is visiting them, he discovered something that just totally undid him. Let me share you with you why when he came back, he left his church, he started a different one, did it totally different with one goal. This is what happened. When he got there, he began hearing of famous preachers. And he was wondering, when do I get to see these well-known preachers? Because these preachers would go into homes, not big stadiums, homes, preaching the gospel. People would get saved. People would get healed. And this is what they told him. He, they said, you know what? In America, very different than China, in America, when you have a great ministry, you become very well-known. But here in China, when you have a great ministry, no one can talk about you. No one can talk about you because the government will come after you and put you in jail. And he just thought, wow. For God to use you in America, you have to become famous. For God to use you in China, you have to remain nameless. And he said, that's what I want. I'm tired of names. I just want to preach Jesus. And when he came back, he resigned from his position. He realized he had become a man pleaser. And he said, Jesus, I just want to live for you. I want to fall in love with you again 
And I want to preach this truth, and that is the love of God. The love of God that's demonstrated in the cross and in the resurrection. And I just want to preach Jesus, and I want to fall in love with Jesus, and I want to surround myself with Jesus lovers and Jesus followers who would be willing to say, I am dead to self. I am taking up my cross, and I am following Jesus today and every day. You know what it means to take up your cross? It means, are you willing to die for him? Are you willing to be like these guys who said, Jesus changed my life and I'm following him. I don't care, emperors or governors, whatever you do, I am following Jesus. He said, that's what I want to characterize my life. I am following Jesus and I don't care what anyone has to say about it. I am following Jesus. And he talks about how he fell in love with Jesus all over again. And it revolutionized his life. Can I ask you that? Can we wrap it up with that? Has Jesus changed your life? And if he has, maybe today you would have to say that that relationship is strange. You feel distant from him. Maybe you today feel disillusioned. I was reading just yesterday in, in the Song of Sol- Songs of Solomon, and in chapter 8, verse 7, It says this, concerning, understand, Songs of Solomon is a wonderful eight-chapter book about this man and this woman, Solomon and his wife, in which they had this romantic love for one another. And so it puts romantic love on display. But the church has always recognized that this is also a letter for the church talking about the church's love for Christ and Christ's love for the church. And with that in mind, let me read this. It says, many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. Is something quenching? See, quenching has to do with fire. Is something quenching that fire of your love for Jesus? hard circumstances? Is it lies that you're beginning to believe? Are rivers beginning to wash it away? Because if that's the case, I want to pray for you. I want you to come to the altar. I want to, wherever you are, it doesn't matter, but for you to cry out and for you to say, God, this this love for you, it's not just a flame anymore. It's like a flickering pilot light. Breathe on me again with your resurrection power, and restore this love for you. Let me fall in love with you again today, Jesus. I want to tell you, if that's your prayer, God is going to come into your life, and he is going to refresh and renew, and he's going to begin to sing over you with songs of love and joy, and he will change your life. Even as a follower of Jesus, we can come to that place. So I'm just going to have us dim the lights right now. And I don't care if you're going to do it where you are. If you want to come up to the altar, but I'm going to ask you, first of all, have you ever experienced Jesus breaking the chains in your life? Because if you have not, he wants to do that today. Secondly, 
Has he so revolutionized your life by his resurrection that you will follow him wherever he calls you to be a witness in the workplace, to shine Jesus? Or has the devil so extinguished and quenched that love in your life? Because if he has today, I invite you, let him resurrect that love.